Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're joining us. I am so honored to uh, have Brian McLaren on with us today. Brian is an author, speaker, activist, pastor, singer songwriter yeah go to Bandcamp and look up brian mclaren and listen to some songs there i i've just uh and honestly brian and i have just talked uh a few times on the phone just in the last couple of months um brian i was uh in in my whole uh last three years where i kind of lost my career marriage uh you know, my community and even my faith to some degree. Um, I was in such a low spot, almost not suicidal, but a notch above it. And mm -hmm. a friend of mine mailed me a copy of Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward. And I hate to say it, but as all the years as an evangelical, I'd heard of Richard Rohr, uh, but I'd never had read his stuff. And I started, I started reading, reading, reading. I last couple three years, two or three years, I've read all of his stuff or a lot of his stuff. It's hard to read all of it, but, uh, and then I, I, I know I was trying to reach him. And then, um, I noticed you'd been working with him and I, I thought, Oh my gosh, I think I know some people that know Brian. And so, mm -hmm. uh, my friend Carl Medeiros, uh, connected us and you were so gracious to, um, uh, to connect with me. And I appreciate that so much. It's been great getting to know you, Fred. Now I've reread. I looked through my library and I already had a bunch of your books. Uh, Generous Orthodoxy, uh, mm -hmm. A New Kind of Christian. Um, I had Everything Must Change. But the two books that I've read just in the last couple of months are Faith After Doubt and Do I Stay Christian? Mm -hmm. And those that's what I want to focus on. But before we get there, I kind of want to do two things to sort of introduce the audience to sort of put this talk on a map and particularly put these two books on the map, sort of the spiritual mm -hmm. map of America and maybe yeah. mostly America. Right. Not necessarily the whole world. But, <laughs> but I was thinking particularly like the story of American Christianity in the last four decades, five decades. Yeah. You know, like our from the time we were born till now. Yes. Yeah. Um, you think about like, would you have, summarize for us quickly, like the decline of the church in America and the rise of the nuns, not N U N's, but the N O N E's, like the demographic yeah. category. Give us, give us your quick take on that because I want to get to the books, right? But give us your quick take sure. on that landscape well, I of say, American. I Humanity. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit older than you, so um, uh, <laughs> not much. Fred, but my, but uh, one one place to start is to say that in the 1950s, when I was born, it was a high water mark for church attendance in the United States. Um, the, the Catholic Church was strong. 
uh, mainline Protestant churches were strong. Evangelical and fundamentalist uh, Pentecostal churches were strong. It was like a, a bull market for religion in America in the 1950s. And in the 1960s, what happened was that mainline Protestantism that had been sort of the backbone of American religious life reached its high watermark in the 1960s. And um, there are a whole lot of reasons we could talk about for that. We can come back. Uh, we can go back to that if you want. But uh, but uh, they began to decline by the late 1960s. So they've had a pretty steady decline uh, now for decades. Um, these are uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and so on. Um, evangelicals thought, oh, man, we're still going strong. And in fact, a lot of people who dropped out of mainline churches joined evangelical churches. So they felt, you know, they were in a bull market. And Pentecostals were having this uh, thing called the charismatic movement that was growing. So there was just a lot going on there. Uh, but then something really interesting happened in the late 1970s. Um, uh, conservative political leaders and conservative evangelical leaders got together and made some deals. There's a lot of research we can point to on this, but they made some deals um, and they formed an alliance that we now know as the religious right. And so uh, from the late seventies through the eighties and the nineties, that really exploded and increased their political power. And um, they had a huge media footprint. And so they have continued to grow. And interestingly, they made an alliance with conservative Catholics so that there was the religious right became a Catholic and Protestant phenomenon. Um, and, and what that has tended to do in recent decades is that younger generations and more highly educated people have become less and less comfortable with the religious right. So what that has done then is actually lead to a decline in, among evangelicals and Roman Catholics. So now, in a sense, uh, all of the major sectors of Christianity are, if not in a numerical decline, they're in a decline in, in percentage of population. And um, so that's, that's the big story. And, yeah. um, and to, to make matters worse, there have been a lot of scandals in the Catholic Church and in the evangelical church, you know, all kinds of scandals. And that just adds disillusionment um, to, to the whole affair. Yeah. 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 And, and my, my own story is, is a little bit of, a, you know, a disillusionment, you know? Yes. Yeah, um, that's right. For, for many people, um, including myself. So, um, yeah. And so it's interesting because I grew up Southern Baptist and then got yeah. into the vineyard movement, right? Yeah. And started this church in 1990 and it grew to several thousand people from in the 90s and 2000s. It really grew every year for almost 28 years. Yeah. Uh, and uh and so, so, you know, the world that you talked about and what's interesting is that the Southern, you know, Catholic being the largest uh, denomination in America yeah. and then Southern Baptist being the largest Protestant denomination. Yes. I think about 15 years ago for the first time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, Southern Baptist started declining every year. Is that yes. correct? 
That's right. And they have taken great pride that it was their conservative theology that made them stay strong. But exactly. they didn't change their theology. In fact, it maybe has become more conservative, but they the, the numbers have um, have gone down. And can I just say, Fred, thinking about, you know, what I said about scandals and so on, what I think has been especially hard for people, it's not what you uh, are an example of. It's when people, um, you know, do things that uh, were problematic and then they blame somebody else or they deny it or whatever, you know, and I think it, it's almost refreshing to people when some leader has a, a, a problem and then they sort of, they admit it and they face it and they, they, you know, they, they, they own it. They own it. Yeah. yeah. That I think, I, I think people are very, very forgiving. We, we all know we have our problems, right? Right. Um, but I think the problem in religion is when, uh, and what even is worse when people then it's almost as if their own, whether it's guilt or shame or whatever, they turn into aggression toward other people and start uh, attacking other people. And that just adds to this feeling right. of disillusionment. And when you brought up the nuns, then a whole lot of people say, you know, I'm not less spiritual than I was before. I'm probably more spiritual, but the whole religion side of it is less appealing. So yeah, then they say, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a nun when it comes to religion, but I'm, I'm in there with, with some form of spirituality. Yeah. yeah I hear you. Like two and a half years, you know, I've been in the recovery world and then I'm also hanging out with a ton of young people in the deconstruction world. Yeah. And then I've, I've got a whole bunches of friends in the LGBTQ world. Yes. And being a, I think being a fallen megachurch pastor who's humble and, and uh, owns, owns his own problems uh, is way more refreshing to those people than if I'd still been a megachurch pastor. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, just, right? <laughs> it, it is ironic, but in another way, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot yeah. of sense. You know, one of the best things that ever happened to me when I was a pastor is we started having a lot of folks from the recovery world um, come to our church. I think at one point, our church is probably 50%, uh, maybe even more people in, in recovery. And um, I would start getting invited to speak at meetings and anniversaries and, um, and then at retreats in the recovery world. And I learned so much from those experiences. It yeah. enriched my life in incredible ways. Yeah, me too. Though it's been awfully painful to have arrived in those spaces at this place and time in my life. It's been so many things I've been grateful for. I, I've fallen in love with some of these communities, right? Yes, that's right. So, so let's connect your story real quick. Um, where did you grow up and your faith denomination? And then kind of your, give us your, a quick rundown of your journey sure. into sort of the world of, of challenging, questioning and doubting your faith, but where yeah, it started so and where it landed. I, I was born in upstate New York, lived most of my life in Maryland. Um, and for the last 14 years have lived in Florida, but most of my growing up was in New York and a short time in Illinois and then in Maryland. Um, and I was born in a, 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 what people today would call a fundamentalist family or an evangelical family. Um, 
uh, a little denomination called the Plymouth Brethren, which don't refer to themselves as a denomination. But um, but uh, if people have heard of Garrison Keeler, uh, Prairie Home Companion, that's oh, his background. Keeler. <laughs> and Jim Wallace is from that background as well. Some people Love Jim Wallace. Yeah. Um, but it very uh, loving, sincere, zealous people, but very... Uh, very literalistic in the way they read the Bible. And they tended to be think that, you know, we were the only people who really had it right. So that's what I grew up in. And when you're, when you grow up, you know, I, I like, this is something I never can forget. However, a person grows up, they have no choice in that. And of course they believe what they're taught by their parents when they're kids. So um, I, I have great empathy for people, whatever they're, their background in this. But I, uh, even as a young kid, I was a questioning kid. I was interested in science. Um, I, I uh, and I remember as a young boy thinking, by the time I'm 18, I'll be out of here because I believe in evolution and I'm interested in science. And a lot of this stuff seems not very realistic to me. So, um, but then in my teenage years, I had this very powerful spiritual experience. Um, some folks will have heard of something called the Jesus movement back in the late sixties, early seventies. And that was my, um, context for having this very powerful experience ended up, um, I, my plan was to be a college English teacher and I taught college English for a while, but then I was involved with a group of people who started a little church and I ended up becoming the pastor of that church and served as pastor there for 24 years. But through all those years, I always was attracted to people who were honest and had good questions. And I often thought that the questions that people brought me were better than the answers I offered them. Right. And so um, <laughs> questioning and doubt really remained part of my uh, whole spiritual experience. And it took a while for me to get comfortable with that. But eventually I realized I I have come to see Jesus as the kind of person who actually was challenging people to doubt what they had been taught and to see things differently. That's why he used the word repent, which means rethink, have another thought, have second thoughts about that, have doubts about what you were told. I'm offering you a different way to think about it. And um, yeah, so my life these last, I don't know, 20 years has been a lot about helping people think in fresh ways about their faith and uh, and think about the way that a healthy faith affects the way we live. Yeah. That, so we're both, we're both church planters. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, you pastored for 24 years in the DC, you're in Maryland, right? But like That's a right. suburb of yes. DC. Is that That's right? It. Yeah. Yeah. And were you involved with a network or a particular denomination? Just independent? Uh, not really. We had a lot of friends of different denominations. Yeah. We tried to connect with everybody we could. Um, right. Yeah. But we were, we were non-denominational. Um, I should say that uh, I, uh, in my later years as a pastor, I became good friends with a fellow who was the director of the Vineyard Churches in those years, Todd Hunter. So Todd and I became good mm. friends for, for those years. Yeah. John Wimber had asked me and Todd Hunter and Steve Shogren and a few other guys to be on a national evangelism task force for the vineyard when he was like in 1995. And so, by the way, Steve said to say hi. Um, Oh, that's great. He he just texted me this morning because I told him I was doing this interview with you. So, but yeah. um, Yeah. So that's, that's been my tribe for, 
was was my tribe for almost 28 years. Hasn't yeah. been for the the last three, but um, yeah. but great great love for those people. Um, great friends there too. So yes. Okay, so you as a pastor, you're a thinker. You're always thinking outside the box. You always felt like people had questions that you didn't always have great answers for. It, it, let's talk about your book. Uh, and then I want to save most of the time for the newest book that you sent me, Do I Stay Christian? But the first installment of that was Faith After Doubt. Yes. And I thought you did a, a brilliant job of um, taking some of the adult development models that yes. you have studied so richly. You've, you've studied those way at a, at a much broader level than I ever did and then kind of combine those into, into the, the four stages of development that you can, you know, that you talked about in your book, faith after doubt, but tell us how you came from being pastor to kind of going through those stages yourself. Maybe, maybe you were always in perplexity a little bit or when did <laughs> perplexity hit the, hit the zenith for you. Um, yeah. But talk about so those just, four stages and how that kind of related to your pastoring. Yeah. So I'll just say first, Fred, um, I was exposed to uh, uh, theories of human development uh, when I was a college English teacher. And as part of my professional development as a, as a teacher, um, I attended a seminar where we learned about uh, uh, one particular theorist. And I was so interested by him that then I started reading other theorists and um, it just became kind of a, a, a lifelong in, uh, interest for me. Um, and I tried to synthesize them into four simple stages. Anybody can remember them first time you hear them. It's simplicity, obviously, where we would start. Complexity, because if you spend a long enough time in simplicity, you realize that life is more complex. Simplicity, complexity, and then perplexity. When you when you um, begin to feel that even your all of your strategies of complexity are, are letting you down in some ways, and then a lot of people stay in each of these stages the rest of their life. Um, but uh, I think more and more people are spending enough time in perplexity that they begin to edge their way into harmony. And harmony is where we learn to integrate. We learn to accept people where they are. We learn to stop assuming wherever we are is the normal place to be. And, um, and, and we begin to integrate some of those uh, strengths that we developed in each of the earlier stages. Um, I, I grew up in simplicity. And then um, I think as a... Uh, do, do a quick thing on simplicity. It's, you yeah. know, you're, what you're told with figures, black, white, right, wrong, in, out. Yes. Yeah, the two big words are dualism, meaning we learn to put everything into two categories, us, them, in, out, safe, dangerous, friend, enemy, that kind of a thing. Um, and the other big word is authority. We look for authority figures who tell us who goes in what category. And, uh, and that's where a lot of us start. Um, and uh, really, all the forms of Christianity that I had been introduced to were, in, were stage one expressions of Christianity, meaning that the adults in the room were trying to bring the children in the room to be at their level of simplicity. Um, but then when I was in college, uh, I met more and more people in 
complexity in that second stage. And um, that was super appealing to me because that's the stage of pragmatism uh, where you just want to, and you want to just learn all the information you can. Mm -hmm. So you start allowing that there's black and white. And then in between there are some stages, uh, some shades of gray and you want to learn all the complexities and you want to learn all the background information. And, and um, so that kept me really busy. I went to University of Maryland and studied okay. English yeah, okay. and got a master's degree in English there. Okay. And, um, uh, and uh, so stage two is where I really like to be. And in many ways, the evangelical Christianity of, you know, my youth was a stage two phenomenon. In many ways, the megachurch, I think, is a stage two phenomenon. Um, it, people stop arguing so much about who's going to hell and they want to talk more about how do you have a good marriage or how do you do well at work or how do you conquer this or that problem? <coughs> these these um, pragmatic or practical challenges. Um, and... Um, uh, I and stage two is a great place to be a pastor because you have all kinds of things you like to help people with. But I had dipped my toes into stage three as early as high school. And then by the time I was in graduate school, I was deep in stage three. And in some ways, in my private life, I lived in stage three. And in my public life, I tried to function in stage two because there weren't many people I knew who were ready for those deeper questions. Perplexity, you might call it a stage of relativism or critical thinking. When you, you go back and you, you, you want to face the truth, no matter how ugly and painful. And can be cynical, uh, too, I think. Right. In fact, if you stay there long enough, you are <laughs> almost guaranteed to become cynical. That's right. Um, especially when you never meet anyone who's beyond you. Um, and so uh, I wrote a song. I, you, you mentioned I was a songwriter. I wrote a song uh, that really captured stage three. I wrote this in my 20s. And it was called X-Ray Eyes. And the line, the first line went, um, it's so sweet to complain, such fun to criticize, to see the world through penetrating X-Ray eyes, to find the bad in everything, to taste the honey and think of the bee sting. That was the, uh, you know, that was my uh, sort yeah. of ode to, to cynicism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it was very hard to be in that place as a pastor because, you know, people want you to have the answers and not, they, they want you to answer their questions, not question their answers. <laughs> yeah, gosh. And then kids always ask the best questions or the hardest questions, right? <clears throat> like they oh, ask man. the ones that there really aren't any answers for even today, right? So. <laughs> That's In fact, I, my kids often ask me the questions that I couldn't answer at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah parents, you bring into a kid and say like, like, well, where did God come from? well timmy he he just always has been you know (laughs) oh that explains everything all right yeah well um so faith after doubt was uh, uh you you have been in this space of working with people whose faith had fallen apart or deconstructed or hit this stage of perplexity. Yeah. And you've been in this space for 20 years. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. More. Uh, uh, yeah. Probably 30. Maybe more. Uh, okay. Yeah. 
And, and so, so this book, Faith After Doubt, was really a, a book to try to give people some language around their experiences and to sort of help them uh, navigate through some of their experiences and help. And one of the things I loved about it is that you, you have grace for every stage. You're not trying to be like, Oh, you haven't made it to this stage or, you know, that you're not, that's not approaching it from that kind of sort of uh, superior kind of idea. Right. Yeah. Because stage theories can be used to oppress people and manipulate people and shame people and gain power over people. So there's a downside in stage three, where you learn to see the downside in things, you learn to see the downside of of stage theories. So that's certainly true. That's why the metaphor I like to use is not like uh, going from one room to another. I like to use the metaphor of, uh, of a tree where you have each new growing season of a tree. It adds a new ring and that new ring doesn't exclude the earlier rings. It includes them and expands beyond them. Yeah. And in fact, the way that it grow it grows is by growing on the, the gains that were made by the previous growing seasons. And that's the way that's to me, the best way to think about stages that we, in, we include and build upon one stage and then develop a new set of skills. In fact, all of us know this if we learned any math, like you, you really do need to learn counting first, and then you learn adding, and then you learn subtracting, and you really can't get to multiplying and dividing until you've got adding and subtracting down. So you build on one set, but the new set of skills takes you someplace that the other set couldn't take you. So, uh, and I think it works that way in a lot of domains of life. Yeah. Um, when you think about people, you know, entering into compl- to perplexity, all right. Yes. Um, I, I feel like I'm a latecomer, Brian, <laughs> mm. in terms of my age, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I look at, you know, like when I was in college at Baylor, um, back then Baylor, my professors were all, um, you know, what, what we would have called back then liberal, like they were, uh, people are surprised by that sometimes because that was, I I was in Baylor before sort of the, the big wars happened in the Southern Baptist convention. I was right on the cusp of it actually. Um, but like my professors were into, you know, Bultmann and Tillich and Schleimacher and I was reading Hartshorn and, uh, you know, uh, you know, like process theology guys when I was That's 18, amazing. 19 years old That's and I just gotten saved and had stopped doing recreational drugs a couple of years <laughs> earlier. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, I really had a major life change. And so I was found it fascinating to read like process theology. And I was, I was almost like, huh, this is like maybe God's evolving, you know, kind of mm-hmm. deal. And I thought it was fascinating, but then I really, I really didn't quite buy into it, you know? Yeah. And I found like just, I would say just really good, smart, conservative theologians that I kind of gravitated toward, you know, like in the end, it would have been like an N.T. Wright, you know, but when I was in college, I didn't have N.T. Wright, but I had other people kind of of that ilk. But um, it's interesting to me, like some kids go to college and they have their Sunday school education and then they all of a sudden, you know, hit a atheist philosophy teacher in an intro class 
and they, they deconstruct right off the bat, right? Yes. I mean, they, they could be 18 and they deconstruct in college. Um, yeah. But other people, it could be a marriage that falls apart, a job that they lose, a health issue. There's something in life creates a crisis. And uh, there are all kinds of reasons why people sort of go from that complexity stage where they feel like they got a lot of answers to all of a sudden. Yes. Like, holy crud. Uh, like for me, I, I, my whole life fell apart. Yeah. And it felt like an apocalyptic wasteland of yeah. darkness. <laughs> and yes. Like there's nothing yes. left. Yes. And it was just like, I questioned everything I'd ever believed. And yes. I've told everybody, and I felt like an atheist, you know, I just yeah. didn't, just none of it held together. And, yeah. it, and part of it was just my own failing, but my own failing had been so rooted in my, my belief systems yes. that I had yes. worked so hard to develop for 40 something years. Right. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it was painful for me. Yeah. Uh, and you have shame attached to shame because I was ashamed of my own oh. behavior, but then I was ashamed of losing or shattering my faith. Well, you know, yes, you yes. know, and then I had a community of people that, you know, through the years I'd led thousands of people to follow Jesus. And then, you know, <laughs> and I'm not holding myself together. You know what I mean? It's, yes, yes. It's a yeah. painful uh, deconstruction. And I, and I know yeah. as I've listened to, uh, so many young people and people of all ages, all the way up to my age, who enter into this stage of perplexity. Sometimes it's an intellectual curiosity and it's fun and it opens up new worlds, but sometimes it's painful. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're uh, agonizingly painful, uh, painful to the very brink of uh, survival. I think. Yeah. Yes. And, and every person is different. And, um, and I wouldn't say you were kind of late to the party, Fred. I would say <laughs> that most people stay in stage two their whole lives. Um, and uh, I think stage two is a super comfortable place to be. Um, and people keep it going as long as they possibly can. Um, uh, but when it, when it collapses and especially, you know, when it's your way of making, it's hard enough to have questions and doubts, but when you make your living by having answers and faith <laughs> instead of questions and doubts, then it's, it adds a new layer of complexity. Yeah. But it's, as you were, as you were saying that I was remembering, I, I have a friend who's a pretty famous theologian uh, retired now. Um, and his mother I was at his home once and his mother was, she was close to 90. I would say she might've been in her early nineties. She was very bright and sharp and her husband had just died. My friend's father had just died. And I'll never forget. We're sitting in the, in the kitchen. And I guess because I'd written about doubt and this sort of thing, she said to me, when my husband died, I prayed and prayed and everything that I prayed for the opposite happened. Um, and she said, it was the first time in my life I've had doubts. Mm. Um, and she'd had a, a pretty comfortable life. Things hadn't gone 
you know, she's one of those people who just avoided any major struggle. And then when this came, she just felt like this idea that my husband preached and that I believed that if you're in trouble, you pray, everything will get better. Um, she said, every single thing that I prayed for, the opposite happened. Mm. And, and so here she was, 90 some, or somewhere around there, years old. And admitting for the first time that you may be in our, the language we're using, she was stepping her toe into perplexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it happens for different people yeah. at, at different ages. I, I, I was just talking to someone recently about the life of St. Francis. And I think one of the reasons St. Francis is, was such an amazing figure is that I think he in some ways hit perplexity at a relatively young age. And um, and hit a lot of suffering at a relatively young age. And I think it's often suffering and failure that mm-hmm. brings people to a place where they, they, they start asking bigger questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that. I, I prayed a million prayers my whole yeah. uh, my whole life uh, yeah. to be faithful to my wife and faithful pastor mm-hmm. and finish well and then didn't, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, uh it's hard. Um, I have a friend who's 30 now, probably. Um, he grew up in, he's African-American, grew up in a white evangelical church as a worship leader. And he, he was, he was gay and he tried to pray the gay away his whole yeah. young adult, you know, his whole teenage and young adult life. Yeah. And, and he was even a mission. And then he finally just, he finally just realized I hate myself and supposedly God loves me. So I'm just going to have to stop hating myself. <laughs> and, yeah. and he, and it, but that was a painful. Yes. Um, because you know, it, it led to his, his entering into perplexity, right. Even though he'd been even yeah. a short term missionary and stuff yeah. like that. And so many painful stories out there. Um, yeah. But yeah. then, but then we have this hope of, of, emerging into this, uh, these new places. Yeah. You know, if we survive, <laughs> Yeah, I like yeah. what you say. Survival is underrated, right? But, uh, <laughs> yes. but if we survive it, we can, there is some, there are some new places. So let's, let's talk about your newest book. Do I stay Christian? Because yeah. even though this applies to, uh, our friends outside the Christian faith, right. Our, it, it could apply to our, our, uh, our, uh, people of other faiths can go through these yes. same stages, right? So it's not just a Christian thing. That's right. I think these are human patterns, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, I've had really interesting conversations with Muslims and and Jews and Buddhists and Sikhs and Hindus who who would have their own way of uh, talking about their own progression through stages mm-hmm. of faith. Just I'll give right. you a quick example. I have a Hindu friend, and he. Uh, he told me he, he he told me he grew up Hindu fundamentalist, yeah. and when he was a little boy, he had a Hindu uh, Bhagavad Gita storybook, which was like a Bible storybook with pictures. And he said, um, in Hindu art, one of the ways you show someone is divine. You know how in Christian art they put a halo around the head. In Hindu art, they put they made you blue. You you would be. Your skin would be blue. That showed that you were divine. And so Krishna or Vishnu would be blue. And he uh, he's reading this book. His mother's reading this book to him at bedtime. And he says, 
was there really, were there really people with blue skin who look blue? And she said, well, yes, of course. And he said, why don't we see any people with blue skin today? <laughs> and she said, don't ask questions. Just believe what I tell you. <laughs> and, and he told me the story to say, I went through the same things as a, as a Hindu kid growing up that you went through as a Christian. <laughs> Isn't that great? Humanity. I, I love the, yeah. the common humanity there. Well, let's, why don't you give us a quick, because I'm going to, I want to dive into each part of your new book, um, yeah. or at least ask a few questions um, of each part with the time that we have left. Yes. And, uh, but give us just a quick overview of, do I stay Christian? Why did you write it? Why is it a sequel yeah. to Faith After Doubt? And what are the three parts? So faith after doubt, I wanted to talk about stages of faith and help people, especially in stages three and four, to know that there's nothing wrong with them. It's not their fault. They're just growing. That's why they're in these new stages. And I, in a sense, I'm also trying to help people in stages one and two to say, you haven't arrived. There's more to go. And don't judge those people who are at a different place than you. So that was really the big picture. Well, in practical terms, what this means is that people in Complexity and harmony stages three and four. Very often they find themselves being squeezed out of their churches or they just feel I go to church and I hear this sermon that makes a lot of people feel better and it makes me feel worse or it leaves me with so many questions. I'm not inspired. I'm frustrated. And so they think maybe I just can't be a Christian anymore. So the, the, my purpose in writing this book is to help those people make that decision. Um, it's not a book that tries to convince people to stay Christian. And right. it's not a book that tells people to leave and give it, give it up. It's a, it's a book that I'm honestly trying to help people. So the first third of the book is uh, the book has three parts. Part one is called no. Do I stay a Christian? No. And I try to give the 10 best reasons I can think of. And I've heard, and I felt to leave Christian identity. Um, and then the next uh, part two is called yes. And basically, if you've paid attention to those first 10 reasons, is there any way to stay Christian? And that's what right. I explore in those next 10 <laughs> chapters. And then at the end of that, I realized that some people are going to stay Christian and some people aren't, no matter who writes what book because people have reasons for doing whatever they're going to do. Right. And, and then I try to raise the question, how are we going to live, whether we stay Christian or not? Mm -hmm. I actually think the question, how do you want to live is a more important question than what box you check on a survey that asks your religion. So, yeah. um, so that's, that's the, the shape of the book. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I went through, you know, I thought, well, gosh, even if there is no God, how do I want to live? Yes. And, you know, I'm not saying there isn't a God. Right. I'm just saying that, you right. know, when I was in my deepest uh, questioning, it's just like, well, I still want to, I still want to lean into what's beautiful. I still yes. want to lean into creativity. Yes. I still want to lean into love and forgiveness and grace <laughs> and serving for the common good. And I just, that's the kind of person I want to be, you know, Yes. regardless of yes. what, who God is or if there yes, is one yes. or what, you know, what yeah. version of God there is, all that. Yeah. I'm thinking about writing a book, 50 Shades of God, you know, and um, <laughs> seeing, you know. But, That's uh, a great title. Yeah. It's a great title. And, and it, but it's true, isn't it? Because you, you take a hundred Christians and the differences in their understandings of God 
are, are bigger than the difference between this Christian and that Muslim's understanding of God. So it's, it's great. It's so fascinating. So I must, I, I sent you a text after I read part one, Brian, and the, the, all the reasons why we shouldn't stay a Christian. <laughs> and I finished reading that. And I tell you, I, I set the book down and I literally, um, gosh, I'm going to start crying again, but I started sobbing like deep, deep sobs. I'm in, I'm in the house by myself here, but it felt like, uh, you know, and I'd read all of that before. I, and I, I certainly resonated with, I, you know, that critique of Christianity, but you packed it into such a short few pages. And then my own life, the last three years and how all yeah. of that just kind of, and then just reading it. And I just wept and wept and wept, um, man. But, uh, you know, one, one, when I was reading the book, and I don't know if this works or not, it's just certainly how I saw it, but it's just one, one lens that I saw it in. But, you know, I've been in the recovery world, and I thought about, you know, I've been in the 12 steps, you know, mm-hmm. two and a half years. And it, my first time into that world, you know, I wasn't, you know, I had about a two and a half or three-year period of time where I was on Xanax and, and problem drinking with alcohol. But... Uh, hadn't been a part of my whole life, but I've really come grown to love the recovery community. And I thought about, you know, it's almost like Christianity when it's misbehaving over these last 2000 years are like an abusive alcoholic father. Yes. Yes. You know, and if you read those 10 chapters, like these are all the ways that Christianity has horribly misbehaved and, and been abusive. Right. Yeah to so many people. And I thought about like, what is, what does Christianity need to do? Well, they need to do a step one, two, three. Yes. (laughs) They first need to surrender, like surrender all your concepts of God, surrender all your certainty, surrender all of the things that you think, you know, so well that have hurt so many people. (laughs) Yes. Just give up (laughs) surrender. Oh my gosh. And then I thought about steps four through seven are a a fearless moral inventory. And basically that's what you did to Christianity in the part one where you did a fearless moral inventory. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, is a good sponsor will tell you that not when you do a fearless moral inventory, you not only look at the bad, but you also look at the positives. Like you don't run yourself down completely. Yes. Right. So you, it's so like if you think about your own self and you're in therapy and you're <laughs> yeah. of all the all the dark, shitty places in your own self, you know, and you do yeah. a yeah. moral inventory. But then you have to like go, OK, well, what 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 is what's beautiful about me? What's what's yeah. what's, you know, that divine spark in me, you know, that's that's yes. good. And I thought like part two is kind of like that that assessment of, gosh, here's all the beautiful things that that uh, Christianity has brought to the table, Hmm. you know? Yeah. And then I thought the last part is how, and I thought, well, that's kind of like steps 10, 11, and 12, because, you know, you're like, (laughs) well, you make amends, first of all, for all the shitty things you did. Right. And then, and then you try to live that out in a place of prayer and contemplation and service for the common good. And I just, I I don't know. I just like, I thought 
it, it kind of worked for me just because I've been. That living, works for me. That works for me. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could say that that's exactly what I was thinking when I structured it that way. But uh, you, you come up with a better explanation than I have. But no, that's that's a great way to say it. It's a great way to say it. Yeah. Well, I, that's part of the genius. I, it's the it's the part of the genius of the 12 steps is that, it you know, every a lot of people want to change, but they don't. But just even to give them to give them a path and say, you, you might not have thought of this, but an essential part of, if you really want to change an essential part of this is realizing how your addiction, not only hurt you, but it hurt others. And let's yes. deal with that. That's right. And, and this is one of the things that I think happens when people go through a faith deconstruction, if they only think about how their religious community hurt them, it can end up, at some point, I just hope that people will then realize, let's face the reality that our, our religion has hurt other people as well. And yeah. a lot of them and really badly over a very long period of time. And um, yeah. because if we don't do that, then our behavior, then we relapse and our behavior <laughs> repeats itself. So, mm. yeah. I, you know, I live in the same area where I pastored, right? Yes. So when I go to the grocery store or go to the gas station for the last three years, I bump into the people that I pastored, right? Yes. And if I get more than five minutes with them, you know, yes. privately kind of thing, yes. I've, I've actually done amends to over a thousand yes. people face to face. Amazing. And I, I thought about that. I thought, gosh, when will this end? Because I was like mountain biking in the snow, like, and it was 18 degrees and I bumped into a guy. Like we were only two on the trail and I, and we had enough time to stop and talk and I did an amends and I, I was by myself contemplating and I'm, this was just recently. And I was like, God, Lord, is there ever going to be a time when I'm not making amends? You know, like I've been doing it for all these. <laughs> and, but then I thought about the, this in terms of like how we, you know, how we've treated, you know, African-Americans or, indigenous peoples in the land and all, you know, the colonization yeah. issues and the white supremacy, issues, all the white patriarchy issue. Yeah. And we're all, you know, we, I, in some ways we make amends by the way we live the rest of our life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it so what if it never ends the rest of my life? Yeah. If I can help heal people through making amends, right. I don't know. Do you hear what I'm saying? Oh, it's, I, I do. I do, Fred. And what seems especially beautiful about that to me is you think in that process of making amends, I make my, I become a better person than I would have been otherwise. And I make the world a better place. I make life better for other people. So it's like, it's not just that I did something harmful and now I recover but as much harm as I caused, I start causing that much good in, in yeah. the aftermath. But it's, it, it, to me, there's something about that that just feels like that, that feels right and makes, and makes a lot of sense. And, I, you know, I think about, you know, like I had really good partnerships, still do, with the African-American community here in Kansas City, the Hispanic community here in Kansas City, the, we worked with immigrants and refugees and all these. But, you know, even now, as I encounter all of these people who have been hurt by the church, wounded by the church, and I hang out with those people, um, you know, there's that sense in which we grieve together. Um, 
we, we weep together, but then we, we envision a new future together too. Yeah. And, and that's a healing process. I think that I, I like the fact that you didn't, you did a fearless moral inventory of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, but then you, you, you brought it around to that, that's that side of healing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, part, part two in the saying yes part. Um, gosh, there's so much here. Uh, I like the fact that you put it into this world of um, how we really can't leave ourselves. Yes. I mean, if, if you've grown up with the metaphors of Christianity, it's like a heart language. Yeah. It's like if whatever your heart language is, that's going to be your heart language. You know, if you grew up speaking Spanish, well, if Christianity is your faith heart, language even if you try to leave it yeah. it's like trying to leave yourself yeah it's like how can i get away from me you know yes and so you brought it back to that to that that common sense of humanity that that, that we all have to make peace with at some level or yeah. another yeah like how do i leave myself you know kind of a yeah. kind of idea yeah. how, how well, do i, I really and I like the, the thought of how do I reintegrate yes. and reimagine and what, transcend and include, as you like to say. Yes. Yeah. That's a beautiful and, piece of it. And, you know, when you think about that, we're all constantly doing that as individuals. Right. Um, we have to do that as nations. If we don't do that as nations, we'll just keep repeating the horrible behavior. So, yes. you know, you, you realize you, you look and you say, Hey, Russia did some atrocities in Chechnya and in Syria, and then they've never really come to terms with it. They got away with it. And the longer you get away with it, the longer you repeat it. And the Christian faith has gotten away with murder. It's gotten away with horrible, horrible things. And, and, uh, and we even see it going on in our country where, a lot of white Christians don't want to tell the truth about what white Christians did to indigenous and black people and um, or male led organizations don't want to tell the truth about what they did to women and gay people. And so this act of telling the truth, it brings humility as opposed to pride. And it, in a sense, allows us to, then say, what kind of person do I want to be going forward? And that, yeah. that's what a great place to be, you know, to, right. to, to be able to ask that question. What do I want to be going forward? To me, that's, that's freedom. Yeah. Uh, that's freedom. Yeah. I love the, I love the idea of anticipatory Christianity. Yes. Um, and you, you quote, uh, I don't even know how to say the, the, the Franciscan nun. How do you say her name? Ilya Delio. Um, I love the thoughts in there. And then I even went and listened to that podcast that you recommended with uh, Trip Fuller and uh, John Houghton or. Yes. John Hot. Yes. Hot on, uh, on anticipate. That was really interesting. Yes. Yes. Talk about um, that. Explain that a little bit because I think that's a beautiful, that, 
that idea of uh, harmony, transcend and include and anticipatory Christianity, yes. integrating this, this long history. Yes. Yes. Like if, if we've, if we're 200,000 years of homo sapiens, Christianity has been on the scene for 1% of the, the history. history. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's humbling, right? That's right. That's and what right. do we have to look forward to the anticipatory side of it? For, for a lot of us, uh, this happens in religion, but it also happens in science. People live in a universe that's driven from behind. It's a cause and effect. It's like you are playing pool and you hit the cue ball and the cue ball hits all the, uh, the, the rack of balls and they're all spreading out. Everything is being driven by something that drove it, driven from the past. Um, that certainly describes part of our experience. But for a lot of people, it describes all of experience. It, in, for religious people, they say God planned all this and it all has to happen this way because it's happening according to God's plan. It's the way God hit the cue ball at the beginning and set up the rack at the beginning. It's all got to happen. There's another way to see um, to see reality that doesn't exclude that, but it, it's bigger than that. And it says, actually, I'm sitting here right now and in a minute I'm going to have to get off and um, do another call. And then I've got another call. And then at five o'clock, I'm going to be free. And I could take a walk. I could make a sandwich. I could like, there are a hundred different things I could do. And I get to choose which of those it's going to be. So I, I don't have a lot of choice in the next couple of hours, but there's going to be an hour that I have a lot of choice and I have freedom. And so if I start focusing not on how I'm driven by the past, but I have opportunities in the future, um, it, it creates a different way of uh, life. And here's what's really interesting. You could make a case that the past is gone. Um, it's we have it through memory and, and through its effects. But you could make a case that the future is the repository of time that's coming to us in the present. And so the future is filled with unlimited possibilities. And that puts us in the world in a very different way than in a world that's driven by the past. So that's what I mean by anticipatory, to think about the desired future and the possibilities that we could seize. That's good. You know, we, in the vineyard, we, we always talked about like George Eldon lads, you know, already not yet of the kingdom. Yes. And then N.T. Wright, you know, a lot of, a lot of theologians picked up on the already not yet tension of the kingdom. And I, I just thought that was so interesting that John Hott used the not yet as it yes. relates to God. In yes. the future, the, yes. the anticipatory uh, co-creation with humanity and God of the not yet of the future. And what nothing, that, is, nothing is done. Everything is in process. Everything's growing. And we can grow toward a better life. We can decay toward a worse life. But it's all there ahead of us. It's good stuff. Well, we've, we've run out of time, Brian. Um, I could talk for three hours on this stuff. Uh, well, we'll so do it good. again sometime, maybe. That'd be I great. want to really encourage people uh, who are listening, watching, pick up Brian's book, Faith After Doubt, and then the sequel coming out. When will it hit? When will people get this uh, one? May, May 24th. May 24th. You're going to be able – so this podcast will come out in a few weeks I thought it was interesting that here on we're we're recording this on uh, Tuesday of Holy Week. 
Mm. And we're discussing, do I stay Christian? <laughs> That's right. While over 2 billion people are celebrating Holy Week. And, uh, but, but such a good thing. Um, this book, I, I would encourage all Christians to read this. If nothing else, it gives them a, a sense of the history of Christianity. If they've not ever taken a lot of church history, uh, this is a version of Christianity that you don't usually hear in your local mega church. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, but you would hear it in a, in a good college church history class, right? And, uh, or a university seminary or wherever, if you just learn church history, but it gives you a really good condensed version of the history of the church as it relates to its worst, its worst components. I think all Christians need to know that. It's kind of like your family history, your ancestry tree, right? And then coming to the grips with, okay, well, how do we, how do we live? Like, I think Jesus would be pretty shocked about some of this 2000 years of church history, right? So yeah. how do we, how do we uh, live the best of, of this radical rabbi that we've, uh, we've talked about for so many years? How do we embrace the best of his reimagination of uh, a faith tradition that uh, we've all uh, grown to uh, to appreciate and uh, deconstruct and get perplexed over and then emerge into something new. And I love the idea of how we can, how all the faith traditions are resources at this point in the future as we emerge. It's a good, it, anyway, I challenged in so many ways. Brian, thank you for being with us. How can people find your website? Uh, yeah, so if, if folks go to brianmclaren.net, B-R-I-A-N-M-C-L-A-R-E-N.net, they can find links to my books and podcasts and eBooks and uh, social media and all the rest. So brianmclaren.net. And, and can I just say, Fred, thanks for what you're doing. I'm so glad this podcast, I'm sure, is helping so many people. And your example and openness is helping many people. And uh, I'm honored to be your friend. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks, everybody, for joining us at Spirituality Adventures, and we'll see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.